Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Green Dragon Podcast. I'm your host, Aiden. And your fellow host, Tom. And your fellow host, Jake. Guys, I'm excited for this one. We're back with another part, part two to the Foundations of Freedom uh, Civil War podcast. This one being the battles of the Civil War. In the first episode, we talked a lot about the lead up to the Civil War, a lot of the division in our country from the very start, um, from the very founding, and what caused this great conflict in our nation. Uh, in this podcast, we will be covering the beginning of the, the battles, the, the first major battles of the war, and then we'll be making our way all the way through Gettysburg. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, guys, I was just amazed like how little I knew about this war coming in. I thought I knew a lot. Um, you know, I learned about it in school. I even, you know, uh, my dad's actually, he, he was a, a history, um, he was a history major and, uh, or a history minor. And he, you know, his emphasis was on the civil war. So he always had a bunch of books and, and resources on the civil war. So, um, you know, I had a, opportunities to a lot of that material uh, to read through a lot of that as a kid. Um, and I really doing research for this podcast, realized I know nothing <laughs> or knew, knew, knew nothing. Um, this has been a really eye-opening experience for me. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, same here. I read about, I mean, various battles, generals over the years through different history classes and books I've got at home, but never really, uh, never really took a comprehensive look at what caused it, how it all transpired in a sequential order. So um, I was, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty fascinated just studying this, uh, these four, five years here that this was going on. Yeah, it's truly amazing, like, the amount of history that you can study and that occurred during those five years. Like, it's really compacted into this, in this short period of time. And there's so much, like, I know we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but like you could spend your lifetime just researching one of the battles and like everything that went on in that battle. You could dedicate your life's work to that. Um, you could dedicate your life's work to just learning about one person um, that fought in a, in the Civil War, one general, right? So it, there's just, there's so much there. And like, I think for the average the average person is like, okay, like, why should, why should we care? And, you know, I think it's a valid question. Why, why should we care? Cause there's a lot to learn from the occurrences that happened over those five years. Um, not only for our nation, but also, on you know, a, a personal level too. I think there's a lot we can learn from a lot of the characters, a lot of the people that lived through the civil war that time period. So that's why we're doing this. Um, so hopefully this podcast is just gives you a glimpse and inspires you to go learn more. Uh, I think we should just point out before we get into this, a shout out, I should say a shout out to uh, the Jocko uh, podcast. That was immensely helpful. He did a six part series and 
oh my gosh, guys, like each one was a hour, hour and 20 minutes and just jam packed with information on different battles and generals. And it was truly incredible. So if you're looking after this podcast, if you're looking for something to go like learn more in depth, really get in depth to nitty gritty details, a lot of this stuff, um, definitely would go check out Jocko's six part series on the civil war. Truly, truly incredible. So that would be my one shout out. And I'm sure there's plenty of other resources, but if you want a good podcast to listen to, other than us, of course. But yeah, let's, uh, oh yeah, Tom, go ahead. No, I just was gonna second you on that. I, I've learned so much and the way they structure it, it's very comprehensible and you get a good visual visual of what's happening through each stage. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they do a very good job at painting a picture. Um, it's almost like you are there as they're talking about it. So they're, yeah, it was, it was really, really, really good. Um, but yeah, getting into the battles of the civil war. So the war kicks off officially as we ended our last podcast on April 12th, 1861, uh, when Confederates bombard the fort, Fort Sumter. Um, and the fort is quickly taken, the fort surrenders. Uh, but even after this, you know, the North, I think, thought the war would be over. Lincoln even said it, it kind of assured the country of this 90 days, the war would be over in 90 days. Um, but as we know, that did not prove to be true. And that 90 days quickly turned into years. Um, what I thought was interesting about Fort Sumter, just as kind of one of the key points on this, Lincoln used Fort Sumter as a way to get buy-in from a lot of the Northern states. He, 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 get, he, he got a lot of Northern support after the attack on Fort Sumter. Um, and he got a lot of, he had to build up the Union Army because the, 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 the Army, the United States Army at the time was tiny. I don't, I think we covered that a little bit in the last podcast, but it was very, very small. Um, so they needed, they needed men, right? And so after Fort Sumter, you know, a lot of the, that Northern pride came out and they started, you know, running to, to join the Union Army. And I, and I thought this was just kind of interesting because I think it's very similar to what happened after 9-11 or around 9-11. We see this big, you know, as after this big attack on, on the nation, you know, there's a lot of, of patriotism. It sparks a fire and a lot of people want to go serve their country. So I thought that was really kind of interesting to, to see how Lincoln, I think, to a little bit use those circumstances to his advantage to try to garnish some of that support from, I think, I think a lot of people before that were like, why are we going to, why are we going to just let the South do what they want to do, right? Like, who cares? Yeah, that definitely seemed like it sparked everything because before then, people weren't sure how serious the South was. And then once that happened, the Union got really upset. And then that kind of just launched into 
I guess like the next five years. Yeah, I mean, think about it. Somebody, somebody comes, you know, they, they talk, oh, you know, the South will just kind of leave and whatever. But then, you know, they come in and bomb, they, they bombard Fort Sumter and people are like, oh, you know, we're not going to let them get away with that. And so I think you got a lot of people that just kind of got a fire lit under their ass, so to speak, and, and wanted to get out and do something about it. Um, yeah, I think... One of the other things that stood out to me around this time at the very beginning of the war was that, you know, there was still like Maryland, for instance, was a split state. So it was a slave, it was actually a slave state and, but it was also in the kind of in the North, right? So there was this kind of divide within the state, especially within Baltimore, where it was a Northern state, they, they stayed within the union, but there was a lot of like Southern sympathizers, um, in the state of Maryland. So there was, there was a lot of people that were like trying to keep, keep, you know, impede the, in the union army from doing things and, and just trying to, to resist as much as possible because they didn't like what was going on. But I think it points to, again, like we talked about in the last podcast, how, how divided I think the nation was um, even, you know, not just North and South, but there was, you know, there were Southern sympathizers in the North that didn't believe in what the, the union was trying to do. And there was people in the South that didn't believe in what the Confederacy was trying to do. So I thought that was just another like interesting thing at this point in time um, that really stood out to me. Uh, as we get into this, and this is something they did uh, in the Jocko podcast, but he kind of described, and I think this is important to do, he described how the different armies of the, you know, the Union, the Confederacy named themselves because it gets super confusing because there's just a ton of names getting thrown around. Um, but they were saying that the Union Army typically named its like armies after rivers. So you had the Army of the Potomac being the main one. And you had the Confederate Army, you had the Confederacy, which named its armies after places. So like Army of the Mississippi, Army of Southern Virginia or Northern Virginia. Um, so it was helpful and it might be helpful to you as you're listening to this to try to kind of distinguish because it can kind of get confusing when you're talking about like, oh, you know, this was the Army of Northern Tennessee. And you're like, wait, which which side are we talking about here? It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, that's those are the Confederates. That's the Union. Like we. I think a lot of us think about it. I mean, these, they had, they had so many different names. It was it, almost impossible to follow at some points. Yeah, I, I was trying to keep track of how many armies there were on each side and I lost track pretty fast. Yeah, I, that's a, that was a, that was a, that was an uphill battle for me as well. And I just found that it was best to, okay, let's, you know, let's follow this one. <laughs> and I know, I know, I know they're the Confederates and, uh, and that's, that's, that's really all that matters at this point. Cause it, yeah, it was, it was like, wait, which one are we talking about now? <laughs> yeah, I did go. I actually went and looked it up just because I was curious with all the different names bouncing around in, I think the grand total was like 17 total armies in the war for the union and 23 different armies for the Confederates. And wow. I mean, it could range in size from anywhere from 
between 5,000 to 40,000. So it was mm -hmm. a pretty, pretty uh, wide array of what you would label um, an army. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's crazy. I, I didn't realize that. Um, but it does make sense because you have to think at, at this point in time, you know, there wasn't like, there wasn't really, there was a lot of militias. So the army, the Union Army or the Confederate Army, they were kind of fractured into bits and pieces. Now, I think the main two that we'll talk about today uh, would be the Union Army, the, uh, the main kind of branch of that Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, and then the Army of Northern Virginia, correct? That was Lee's Army um, that was commanded by Robert E. Lee. So one thing right off the bat, I mean, there was the Union Army's leadership was all over the place for the greater part of the Civil War, which shocked me. I never realized that it was just like one guy after another. But at the beginning, um, Lincoln appoints McClellan. Um, and so he's the commander of the Army of the Potomac. And the Army of the Potomac was like the best outfitted out of all the, it was kind of like the flagship army of the, of the U.S. at that point. Um, so, you know, the best, the best supplies, you know, it, it, they had all the contractors with the, giving them the best supplies, whatnot. Um, but McClellan was a, a really interesting character. He was, I don't, I don't think he really cared about the cause. It didn't seem like he cared about the cause. He was a very what's in it for me guy. Um, and I think he used the war as an opportunity to try to boost his like political status. He actually ended up running against Lincoln in the, I think it was, was it the 1864 election under actually the democratic ticket, which is the the northern democratic ticket which was quite interesting but he was he was very much like a i think they called it a status quo type guy which was a common sentiment in a lot of the in a lot of the north and status quo meaning that you know he just he wanted the south he didn't really care what the south did he just wanted things to go on he didn't really care if they left just you know let them leave and go on with our lives um, so he's kind of indifferent, which, you know, if you're putting somebody in charge of your like main army, probably not a great person to have leading it. Um, so yeah, that's general McClellan. Um, yeah. So, you know, the war kind of kicks off after the battle of Fort Sumter, there's a lot of skirmishes. Um, a lot of smaller battles fought, but the first major battle is the Battle of Manassas or the Battle of Bull Run. And this was one of the first major battles in the Civil War. So this was fought in July of 1861. And the Union, I mean, the Union Army is just kind of, I don't know, you know, they, they didn't seem like they were very organized um, or had a lot of like, gusto and they just kind of fell apart and um so that was the first major battle and that ended with uh almost 5,000 casualties heavily leaning on the 
the Union, Union forces. So after the Battle of Manassas Bull Run, um, the next major battle was the Battle of Shiloh. And so this is in April 6th, or it was on April 6th, eight, it started April 6th, 1862. So like close to a year later, I mean, there's a, a lot of other smaller battles fought, but this was another, a big one, a, a really important one. And the Union troops are led by Grant. You less, uh, and Grant ends up becoming our 18th president. But at the time, Grant was just kind of, at least from my understanding, I don't know, guys, what your thoughts were on Grant, but he was, before the war, he was selling, apparently he was selling wood in St. Louis to put food on the table for his family. He wasn't doing anything fancy. Um, and then he just kind of got called up. So Grant just kind of gets thrown into the mix out of, out of nowhere. He was, a, he was a West Point guy, like most of these guys were. Um, but, you know, after he, he, you know, he didn't have much of a, a military, he fought in the Mexican-American War. And after that, it was just kind of, he was doing his thing, um, trying to put food on the table. So he just kind of came out of the woodwork, so to speak. And he's, a, he's an interesting character. Um, but I think he proved to be one of the, the Union's greatest leaders, especially, obviously, militarily, so. Um, and then the Confederates in this Battle of Shiloh were led by Albert Sidney Johnson. Um, the Battle of Shiloh was fought close to the Tennessee River. Um, and from the beginning, It was, it was um, somewhat apparent that the order and discipline on both sides was a, a bit lacking. There wasn't much order or discipline on either side. Um, and so the reason Shiloh was the, the place they, you know, encountered each other in this battle was the Union Army um, after victories at Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson in February of 1862 um, headed south towards Corinth, Mississippi. And the game plan here was to try to gain access along the Mississippi River to uh, cut off, you know, to, to be able to run supplies down for their army and then cut off Confederate supplies, essentially. So obviously the, the Confederate army didn't want the North to make it to Corinth, Mississippi, which was also a bigger city at the time. Um, and so to stop the Union army from gaining access, the Southern army came up and they met on the banks of the Tennessee River. So when they meet here, it's... I don't know, guys, it was, maybe I'll get your thoughts on this, but it, it seemed like they just kind of showed up and from the start, the Union Army was just in a, a really disadvantage, disadvantageous, like just not in a great situation. 
um, even though they had the superior superior force um, as far as numbers went and um, as far as supplies went. Yeah, this I don't know. This might be kind of a simplistic explanation for it, but I feel like the morale of the southern southern soldiers would have been easier to uh stimulate than that of the northern because mm -hmm. you, the union you've got them coming down invading and i think it's maybe a little bit easier than to um have a cause to be invested in whereas you got the union guys that maybe there's a lot of guys from up north or out west that don't really care too much as you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier Aiden, whether or not the southern southern states secede or have slaves that they're not it's not really relevant to them so i think that might be part of it why why that was uh i don't know maybe a little they were a little more disorganized more or less less invested in the in the fight i don't know maybe that's uh that's part of it and then also i think they were probably at this point still still rallying uh and trying to boost up the uh, what's the word? Just the numbers in the army because mm. they mentioned this in the Jacko podcast that we still at this point had a lot of soldiers, a big part of our army that was out west, um, like keeping the frontiers safe for the settlers that were moving out there mm -hmm. in large numbers at that point. Mm -hmm. So I think there was, um, I think that was also part of it was that there still wasn't really a centralized. Um, centralized army as the south had yeah yeah i think um yeah i think being so early on in the war i think a, a lot of it was just different you know each each side kind of trying to figure things out get in their groove um and and try to make some some headway and obviously the north had the instruction of crushing the south but from the start they kind of started out the war, especially the Army of the Potomac, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, it just started out very almost lackadaisical. There wasn't a lot of effort to push. Um, and meanwhile, in the South, you know, the South's fighting for their freedom, right? So there's a lot more, there's a lot more energy, I think, even though the South had, you know, you know, inferior um supplies and support and troops as far as numbers and and all that and equipment you know you've had you had this kind of this fighting spirit um but yeah so the so the battle of shiloh so by the end of day day after the first day of fighting you know it looks like the confederates are just gonna wipe wipe them out right it, it doesn't look good for grant um and so, you know, even though Grant crossed the, the you know, they they started out in the Tennessee and and they tried to make their way up, they actually pushed Grant and the Union Army back to the banks of the Tennessee River, um, and night kind of hits, and and they're just kind of you know wait until morning. Um, and that night, Grant actually uses, and this is something that I thought was pretty interesting, but they actually used like timber-clad ships uh, to support the attack, the Union attack. So they brought in the timber clad ships and basically gave them um, fire, like cannon support uh, from the river. Uh, so that kind of got them through the night. And then in the morning, 
Grant received some additional support from one of the other generals, uh, Buell, and uh, they they kind of took back what they lost. Um, but they, you know, they they got out of there. Um, it was it ended in a, a Union loss, um, but it was it was kind of like a an inconclusive campaign. I mean, it was just a, it was a loss on the Union side because they obviously didn't continue this campaign. But um, you know, each side suffered you know pretty intense casualties. I think this was like the first big. Um, or heavy loss as far as ca casualties went in the war um, with almost like 24,000 people dying in this battle, which is just crazy. Um, but again, like Union lost, I think, roughly like 13,000 troops and the Confederate uh, force lost about 11. So it was a, a pretty, in, a pretty I, I think at that point, it was very apparent that the South wasn't just going to back down and this was this was going to be a a long war you know at this point you're you know from the start you're you know talking about a year a year into this war after fort sumter so that 90 days is long gone and you're in it now and so i think at that point it was kind of very apparent to the public as well that this wasn't just going to be some small skirmishes and small battles. This was this was a very serious undertaking that both sides were going to have to you know, move forward with. Um, but one interesting note from the Battle of Shiloh, one of the confederate kind of characters that were introduced to is this guy named nathan bedford forrest um and i didn't realize this but in the jacko podcast he's actually so there's the the film forrest gump right with tom hanks and in the film he talks about his i think it's his grandfather right that fought in the fought in the war and then ran around in white sheets, right? Or something like that. So Nathan Bedford Forrest is actually the guy he's talking about in that movie. And this is like a real guy. And I thought it was interesting. Um, he was a hero in, in, in this battle uh, of Shiloh, but he actually ended up going on um, to not only be a hero in this battle, but he ended up being one of the founders of the KKK, which I was just like, whoa, I didn't, I, I didn't learn that in Forrest Gump. Um, I thought that was pretty crazy. So he was kind of one of the characters, Nathan Bedford Forrest that were introduced to in the battle of Shiloh. Um, but yeah, overall at this point in the war, I think the South's kind of gaining some momentum and the North is just kind of flying stagnant, which leads us into um, another major battle, the Battle of Seven Pines, which was fought on May 31st, 1862. Now this battle is the, the, Potom the Army of the Potomac led by McClellan, as we talked a little bit about um, McClellan a minute ago. 
and he goes up um and and he fights this battle and one of the things we learn about mcclellan is he's one of these guys that likes to over exaggerate on everything so you know if he sees there's like if he gets his reports in from his scouts and they say oh you know there's ten thousand confederate troops out there he's gonna say there's fifty thousand he's this jocko described him as a slow rolling guy um meaning he just didn't want to do anything <laughs> that's what i got from it this guy was just he was like he's like looking at his watch he's like okay so when can i bail on this to go run for president i think that's what he was thinking the whole time and so you know this this whole time that he's leading the the army of the potomac it's just battle after battle so the battle of seven pines you know just completely inconclusive um the union and confederate troops both suffer casualties and mcclellan probably could have won the battle i mean he's got the the best outfitted army in 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 the country and he can't win battles i mean this guy is just incompetent on all levels um he's kind of arrogant and pompous i think they called him uh they call him Little Napoleon. Was that his nickname? I think that was McClellan's yeah. nickname. Yeah, Little... I think that what that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> so if that just kind of gives you an idea about this guy, he was just, you know, from the, it, there's just not not a lot to like about him. He um, gave he gave me the impression of that um, that high school or college senior that's just checked out, thinks cru- he's too cool. He's too cruising. cool to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you that's got that. It. That's what I thought of him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah he, he just gives those vibes you're just like uh i don't like him <laughs> i don't i don't like him at all um so yeah he would he would exaggerate about all this stuff and so he just he was constantly just trying to get more resources so he he'd be like uh, telling like oh yeah 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 the army's so like you know so big we, we need more resources so we can go fight and he just kind of delaying everything so he didn't actually have to do anything um so yeah, that's McClellan. Um, but that that leads into the second battle of Bull Runner Manassas, which is late September of 1862. And this again is just, I mean, this is another bloodbath with over almost 23,000 casualties, but the most, I mean, greatly, I mean, we're talking about almost 14,000 casualties from the Union Army, as opposed to about 8,000 on the Confederates. And the reason this is, is McClellan actually doesn't provide support in this battle when he could have provided support and possibly won the battle. He chooses to just be like, uh, kind of pretend like he didn't hear the call for support. And um, yeah, it just, it, it they, the Union Army just kind of gets wiped. They just kind of get rolled in this battle because of that. So again, you know, we're seeing just this, it, it becomes a common theme, I think, as over the course of time, as we as we get a little bit further, you'll see this too, is Lincoln is as good of a president as he was, you know, and I, I'm not blaming it on Lincoln, but he was not good at picking generals. Like, it was just one failure after another. You're like, oh boy, this McClellan guy, really? I mean, <laughs> he's he's out there, you know, he doesn't even like the president. He's out there running the army. He's just like, oh gosh, this McClung guy. But 
Yeah, so that's that's it. the second battle, Bull Run and Manassas again, just another. I mean, at this point, the the Union Army has to be you know down in the dumps. You know, you're talking about you're a far superior force, and you should be you know trying. You should be wiping wiping out the rebels, trying to crush the rebels, and he can't do a thing right. I mean, at this point in the war, they have barely done a thing right um so it's it's got it had to be demoralizing and for the south it had to be like oh wow this is this is great you know yeah it's like the only good generals or leaders in the union army seem to be like the lieutenants and the captains and some of the colonels mm -hmm. but when the scouts and the reconnaissance soldiers would give their findings to the higher generals, they would ignore them most of the time to say, oh, you're just seeing things almost instead of acting on what they saw. And it just led to more and more problems, which I think really showed itself from the Battle of Antietam, where they were trying to go for that bridge. Um, yeah, it was led by um, McClellan again, right? And it's, yeah, he's slow rolling. Um, Burnside is one of the generals and he's trying to cling this bridge. Mm -hmm. But the bridge is in a really bad spot. It's in that low point of being fired upon from like a yeah. hill. Yeah, so so if you put this into perspective a little bit, so you, I think I think the way it was explained is, they were, the Union troops were coming down. So Bur Am Ambrose Burnside was the, I think the core general, one of the core generals under, or uh, core commanders under McClellan, right? I think. And so yeah, so like you said, McClellan's slow rolling. He's probably like a couple miles away, just diddling. And um, then you've got Burnside, who's leading his men. And and Burnside was, you know, Burnside was also fairly incompetent, it seemed. Um, maybe a little better than McClellan. But he's, so he's got his his troops and he's sending them down. So the, the Confederates have the high ground, but in between the this high ground, you've got a, basically uh, they were coming out of the woods. They came down to a bridge by like a creek that went over a creek and it almost acted like a funnel, right? So the only way across the creek at least in Burnside's eyes, is well, we gotta we gotta cross the bridge. Well, what that did is, and Tom, you can go on to explain, you know, explain what happened there. But it, it created a a sniper's, you know, dream, uh, shooting from high ground down onto a funneled area for the for the Confederate troops. Yeah, like they kept pushing that area, even though apparently there was a ford about 150 yards away. Mm -hmm. They could have crossed really easily and then overtaken the Confederates, but yeah, they just kept pushing and pushing and then, oh, there are some pretty interesting things that privates had said in the Chaco podcast about that. Yeah. Like, they were just, they didn't understand why they kept going to this one spot and just getting low down. Mm -hmm. It was crazy, but yeah, I was like, most of the losses came from just trying to take this bridge and they didn't actually take it, right? I mean, did they take it? Yeah. 
they they ended up yeah i mean sheer they ended up making it across but i mean with a severe loss of life um so it was a matter of like numbers right i mean the union force uh burnside's men were pretty big numbers so eventually they made it through just because you know the the confederate snipers couldn't take out all of them but i mean they took out big number and that bridge actually became known as Burnside Bridge named after Burnside because of you know his his pretty lame <laughs> excuse for military tactics and I don't yeah I don't know guys like this this whole time I'm listening to this and all these different bets you got McClellan and we didn't really go into detail on some of these but as you listen to the like in-depth description you're just listening to the the maneuvering and the tactics on the union side and you're just like it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that they weren't doing a very good job. And so I can't imagine like being under their command and, you know, knowing that your, your commanders just aren't making the right choices. I mean, it just seems super demoralizing to be in that type of situation where they're just, you know, you're kind of cannon fodder, so to speak. Um, just being thrown out there. And it seemed like the Union Army really relied, at least the the Army of the Potomac, really relied on their numbers and didn't use a lot of military strategy early on. It just seemed like they just line up and, you know, whereas like Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, um, just great military tactics. They had um, his two corps commanders were Stonewall Jackson, and um and longstreet and so he kind of had the he that that army was like the dream team at the time i mean he really lee lee had a lee had a great a fantastic core group of commanders there definitely yeah and um, Jocko was talking about how Stonewall was known as the guy that could move really fast. Mm-hmm. He was like, he would probably march 13 or more miles a day, maybe like 25. He would get to the place and you have a gunfight at the end. Yeah. And that was like Stonewall's it was his um, thing. method. Yeah. He, he was like, he was like all offense, no defense. It was right. just, let's go get him. <laughs> yeah. Like, We're going to go get him. <laughs> And then on the opposite end, I think they talked about this too. You had Longstreet, which was more, he was slow, methodical, defensive, but, you know, nonetheless, still a, a very good um, commander. So you had this kind of like duo and it was perfect because they could kind of feed off of each other. Um, and it was kind of the perfect setup, which is why they were so successful early on in the war. I mean, the, the, army in northern virginia my gosh they were they went on a streak like a serious streak and i think you know if it weren't for certain situations that we'll talk about in a little bit i think that streak could have kept going and that the war might have had a totally different outcome so but yeah so after this battle you know obviously lincoln's like mcclellan you're gone um because mcclellan's out there goofing around doing lord knows what um so he was relieved of his duty sent back to washington to you know prepare for whatever 
his, his po political career. And then he was replaced by none other than who? Our good old friend Burnside, who just got a bridge named after him because of his military tactics. Um, and Burnside's like, what, me, really? Like, did, did you hear about what I did? Like, are you sure about that? You sure you want me leading your army? But yeah, nonetheless, he's chosen to lead the Army of the Potomac. Um, but interesting side note here, Lincoln, you know, when he, when he, when he called on Burnside to, to, um, to lead the army, you know, Lincoln originally wanted to appoint Joseph Hooker as the general of the Potomac army, but then, you know, was advised against this because Hooker had a reputation for himself um, and, and not a good one. Hooker, um, Hooker was a was a ladies man and Hooker liked to, you know, at all times made he at all times Hooker made sure he had women like an entourage around him. And actually, this is where we get the term for, you know, like a prostitute Hooker from. Um, so the term Hooker came from Joseph Hooker's last name. And it's because he would walk around with these women and then they'd be like, oh, look, there's hookers. Uh, so, so that's how we got that. So yeah, Lincoln was like, what about hooker? And they're like, I don't know about hooker. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he'd, he's really in the game mentally right now. Um, what about Burnside? Burnside's burned down the bridge, but like, it's like, you know what? We'll take, we'll take the, the guy, you know, we'll take the guy that just uh, made some poor, poor choices and, and, and try to avoid the, um, avoid this hooker, avoid the hooker guy. So yeah, just interesting little, I didn't realize that. And I learned that I was like, Oh my gosh, that makes so much more sense now. <laughs> I know. I was just thinking about that term. It's used everywhere now. So Mm -hmm. That must have been, I don't know. I won't uh, judge, but I don't he, know. He might be the most famous guy out of the Civil War and nobody yeah. even knows it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I had no idea. Yeah, so so hookers are named after Joseph Hooker's women that he carried around with him at so, during the Civil War. So, now you know. It's a fun fact. Caused, yeah, it is a fun fact. <laughs> yeah, what were you going to say, Tom? Oh, just how... Jocko and JD were talking about that the hooker thing caused a lot of animosity inside the troops mm -hmm. because they couldn't go home to see their families or their wives and then there's like these women just hang around this general and you know they don't they probably don't see many women very often and so they're <laughs> like well this guy just hangs out tells us where to go to fight yeah and there's all these women around him like yeah well, yeah why can't we get some of these hookers <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah not the smartest yeah uh, war not, strategy yeah no no not a, not a great idea not a great idea so yeah i mean it like at this point like as i'm listening to all this and, and learning about this i'm like wow like the union army and Lincoln just started this continuous struggle to find a competent leader for their army. I mean, it is just like one after another. You got, you know, you can't, you can't bring Hooker in because he's too busy. Um, McClellan sucks. He's too focused on, you know, routing 
he didn't even like he didn't even like Lincoln, um, so he he wasn't in the game mentally. Then you got this Burnside guy that you appoint, and well, he just killed off a bunch of his men because he couldn't figure out a, be a better um, strategy in, during battle. So, you know, at this point, you're just where where is this going to go? Because at this, you know, it's battle after battle that that they're losing. So that takes us into December of 1862, the Battle of Fredericksburg. Now, this is a big one. Like, this is a, a big, big battle. And this is the first battle that Burnside is the commander of the Army of the Potomac. So he kind of gets his day, big debut here. Um, Burnside's goal as he's marching is to march down to Richmond and to try to take the capital of the Confederacy. He's like, we'll just, we'll just march down through Virginia. We'll, we'll, you know, we, we can cross through Fredericksburg and we're going to try to take the capital. And this was his big goal that, you know, if we take the capital, you know, we can more or less crush the South. He was pretty ambitious after that whole bridge debacle. Um, but yeah, so Burnside starts marching his, troops i think it was like 120,000 men through virginia down to richmond but they had to go through fredericksburg um and the the reason that this turned into such a difficult assault is because in order to pass through fredericksburg the union army would have to cross uh a major river Guys, remind me, what was the name of that river? Was it the Rappahannock River? Does that sound right? The Rappahannock? I'm going to yeah. have to. Yeah, Rappahannock, I think is what it was. Okay. So they had to cross the Rappahannock River, but the river was like, this isn't just like your, your average run of the mill, like creek. Like, this is a real river. Um, and so, in order to cross that river, I mean, you're talking, you've got. 120,000 men, you've got horses, you've got mules, you've got cannons, like you're going to have to figure out a way to get all of them across the river, right? Um, so in order to get them across the river, they had to create some sort of, you know, basically like a, a floating bridge. And so they you had this, you know, big plan to take Richmond, but they kind of forgot about the floating bridge part. So they marched all the way down and then they had to wait on their floating bridges to get in, which was basically like these pond, like almost like pontoon uh, or like a, like a boat with like planks of wood and they would connect them and then they run them across the river and anchor them. And then they could, it was basically like a, a makeshift uh, bridge that would float and uh, on top of the water and then could be removed or easily destroyed. And so, yeah, so they first have to cross this river. And then once they cross the river, they have to enter into the city of Fredericksburg, which is a urban environment. So then they got to make their way through Fredericksburg. Now, if I'm remembering this right, once they made it through the city of Fredericksburg, there was like a fairgrounds just outside the town. Now the fairgrounds, if you can imagine, is like a mile, like by a mile from like what it was described as of just like flat, like nothing's there. So then you've got a city some like a mile worth of just like flat farmland and then you've got high ground so lee knows they're coming 
and Lee sets his army up in the high ground and then puts some men down into the city of Fredericksburg uh, to kind of, you know, fire, fire down on them as they're crossing the river. So it, from the start, you know, you just look at this situation. It's not a, it's not a very advantageous situation to be in if you're Burnside and his 120,000 men. Yeah, like Jocko was saying, it's like you have to cross the town, cross the river, go across the field, overcome a stone wall, and then you can attack. Oh, yeah, and I didn't, yeah, there's the stone wall, of course. So it was like a sunken road with a stone wall, um, which just adds an element as you're crossing an open field. I mean, that's just another place for the enemy, for, for the Confederates to kind of hide behind and shoot at um, as you're crossing this massive open field. So it's, it's honestly like your like worst nightmare <laughs> if you're, if you're, I mean, it doesn't matter how many men you have, you better, better have a really good plan, which turns out they didn't. Um, and, you know, they, they tried to push. Um, they actually started by bombarding the city. And by bombarding the city, it left a lot of rubble and created like, I think they called it a sniper's paradise, essentially, because as you, you know, break down, I mean, break down buildings, it's going to leave more nooks and crannies for, for snipers to hide in. So, you know, they're, they're crossing the river, they're getting shot at, they get across the river, they're trying to enter the town, they're getting shot at, they finally get through the town. And then they got to cross this, you know, big open field, and they're getting shot at some more. And so it just, I mean, this is a, it's it's bad all around. Let's let's just it's bad all around, um, but it's very like this. Just shows you the difference in strat. I think this battle especially shows you the difference in strategy between these two armies. You've got Lee and the Northern Virginia Army. That's Lee knows where the Union troops are going to come through and he finds the best ground he can and he plans this thing out to the he plans it out to the T. I mean, it's perfect planning on Lee's part. And then you've got Burnside who's just like, well, here's my idea. We're going to go take, you know, Richmond. We're, we're going to make our way through Frederick, but we're just going to go do this. And he, he hits all these obstacles. And instead of saying, hmm, maybe we should rethink this, he just pushes through and uh, doesn't ever really rethink it. And so, yeah, it's not a, it's not a pretty outcome. You know, it ends up being a, a union loss. And this one's a big one. This is probably, I think they said it was one of the greatest um, like ratios of loss to the union side. I mean, 17,000, almost 18,000 total casualties. And 13,000 of those are Union, which is just devastating. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, one of the um, neat stories, though, that comes out of this battle, and I don't, I really, really enjoyed I'm going to have to do more research on him is about this Confederate soldier. who's an enlisted soldier named Richard Rolland Kirkland. 
and he was an enlisted soldier that requested, you know, after the first day of fighting, he was behind the stone wall. So you had the stone wall in the fairgrounds and he, he couldn't, uh, there were so many screams from the, the battlefield, um, which was the big open field uh, from the Union soldiers. He requested to his commander to bring water to the wounded dying soldiers on the battlefield. Um, the Union soldiers on the battlefield. And so his commander's like, you know, I can't say no to you, um, but you know, you're risking your life out there. So he climbs over the wall. He starts getting shot at by the Union side because they're like, and this guy's been shooting at us all day. We're going we're gonna to take him out. And he um, ends up making it and he starts tending to the wounded. And it ends up being a ceasefire for a while. And they, and both sides start coming out and, and tending the wounded and bring water to the wounded. Um, so I think that's a pretty special like moment in all this devastation. Um, you know, you've got a Confederate soldier that's willing to risk his life to go bring water to the wounded Union soldiers. And I think it just kind of this this for me was one of those moments as I was learning about all this that I was like, you know, it just reminded me that these people that fought against each other were countrymen and had a lot of them had that at heart still. And they were serving their, you know, do, you know, doing their duty to their, to whichever side they thought was right. But at the same time, you know, they still viewed the other side as, as these human beings, as these countrymen and they were willing to risk their lives for each other. So that's pretty awesome. I thought that was a really neat, neat story. That must have been a surreal feeling to be one of those guys um, that was part of the ceasefire. Mm-hmm. You know, you were just, just trying to end each other's lives a few minutes ago, and now you're out on the battlefield probably chatting, exchanging stories and whatnot. Um, backgrounds it's just yeah it's fascinating to to think about and try to put yourself into their shoes yeah 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 I can't imagine it's yeah it's got to be it it had to be just a a really incredible moment for like you said both sides to to have that feeling um after after killing each other all day to find some commonality over trying to go out and help those that were wounded. I mean, that's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. I just remembered that, um, I was looking at this map actually that kind of showed what was happening at this battle. Mm. Um, you want to bring up the visual? I can sure. Yeah. Let me give you. But, um, so uh, they call it the Mary's Heights, and that's where I think the wall went on the road. Yeah, yeah, Mary's Heights, that's right. Yeah, because they call them the Angel of Mary's Heights. Yeah, yeah, so it looked like, um, let me show the screen real quick. Um, so, you guys can see this. Okay. Yeah. So I look, I think this was the main spot. It's like when they came over the river 
they're trying to come up here and this road was where they had the wall and i think this is what they called the slaughterhouse mm -hmm. because like everything came in here and they were being fired down upon and they had to cross this big area was for the fairgrounds to come up and take that road but they couldn't make it so that's i think the whole area right there was where kirkland was coming in and getting water and <clears throat> when the ceasefire happened um yeah that's it was pretty crazy like how much was happening in a short amount of time mm. and how much loss there was like i just think about like you know twenty thousand soldiers that's the equivalent of a pretty sized big town of today yeah. you know and that's Absolutely. one day's worth like that's just one day's loss in a mm -hmm. battle at this scale yeah but yeah yeah no absolutely yeah it's it's heavy it's really it's a it's heavy to think about i mean you put out these numbers and it's 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 really is staggering it's yeah it really makes you sit there and think like wow i mean both sides were willing to fight at all costs um to make sure that their, you know, their ideals were kind of solidified and to sacrifice that much life is just, it's really crazy. Um, but it's also crazy from like a, a military like strategy standpoint that you would throw your like Burnside would, you know, throw his men into a situation like this and, and continue to push when it was apparent that there wasn't much reason to continue to push other than his plan to overtake Richmond was failing. I mean, he was trying to push for that. I, I get that, but still, um, he never really backed down when he should have. So, yeah, I, after, after the, the battle, you know, the, the federals, you know, retreated, the federal army retreated and they lost all the opportunity to, you know, advance further into Confederate territory. And like I said, um, go forward with trying to capture the capital, uh, in Richmond. So that kind of ended Burnside's short, short-lived uh, career as commander of the Army of the Potomac, general of the Army, Army of the Potomac. And so who, uh, who's Lincoln thrown to, <laughs> in, into, um, into position? He throws Hooker as the commander now. So Hooker gets his chance again. Um, so that's interesting. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it, it's when you, when you read, when you read about or listen, listen to the accounts of these battles, it's just, it's really, truly horrific. And to think that this wasn't that long ago, guys, I mean, this, I mean, this is 1862. That's not that long ago. Um, yeah. that our country was completely divided and we we're 
yeah, like you said, killing basically in single battles, killing small, medium-sized towns worth of people at once. It's just, it's heavy. It's heavy. Um, as we move on, one thing I wanted to touch on that I thought was an interesting point that Jocko did bring up is how resources played a role in how the Confederate army moved. And I thought this was an interesting point because it does make a lot of sense when you look at how Lee and the army of Northern Virginia positioned itself in a lot of these battles. And so as the Confederate army moved because of its lack of resources, like the Northern army of the Potomac had, the army of Northern Virginia, because of its like sheer quantity, I mean, you're talking 100,000 men, right? Um, or was it 80,000, somewhere around there, but still a massive force of men. Um, they, they required, they had to eat, eat and gain provisions off the land itself. So it was kind of like this, I think they described it as a land shark. It was just, they, the army kind of just enveloped um, and just depleted resources from the land. So Lee knew this. Um, so he had his two main corps of men. Uh, you had the troops led by Stonewall Jackson, like we talked about, and you had Longstreet as well. So he couldn't keep them all in the same place because there's just too many men. If they went into a town, there wouldn't be enough resources for everybody. So he had to keep them far enough apart where they could, you know, maintain the resource levels that they needed, but also close enough together that he could bring them together if there was a battle that needed to be fought. Um, but I think this just like, shows you like he was he was really thinking <laughs> um he he understood what it took to to win battles and how to position his men and his army in the best possible scenario in the best possible scenario to, to win battles and i think it just points to the brilliance of lee in many different ways in his leadership as a as a general um really really incredible but it also just shows you like the resourcefulness of him as well i mean this is an army that didn't have the backing of a lot of the as we talked about in the last podcast there was little industry in the south there was not a large backing to the confederate army as far as resources went so he had to get creative and so i thought that was just a neat kind of thing but also played a important role in how he meaning lee how he fought battles and how he kind of positioned his troops to to fight yeah i just found this really good uh diagram if i can share my screen for a second detailing the uh economic resources mm. of the yeah. north of the Union versus the Confederates. Um, Give me one second. Just share it here. I think it just highlights well the uh, the disparity between the two regions. Um, can you guys see that? Okay. It's just pulling up. Oh, there, there we go. Yeah. 
All right, so the second uh, little bracket there, the economic resources. Mm. Yeah, look at I that. I mean, just like the first line, 120,000 factories in the north versus 20,000 in the south. Hmm. Um, 2,700 tons of iron versus 155 tons produced by the south. Um, and then also the kind of the monetary aspects of it too. The north had a much more efficient banking system um, mm. versus the South, which relied on their own government bonds and um, personal savings. So I don't know. I think it just really, really, uh, I didn't even realize how great of a disparity that was between the resourcefulness of the two, the two sides. Yeah, that's crazy. And to think, I mean, you, you start to think about this at this point in the war lee is like seven and oh like as far as his battles go and what the union i mean i mean we're talking about the Ar army of the potomac and um you know leads the um, army of northern virginia here but there's not a lot of a lot of wins on the on the union side and so you, when you look at this and you see the economic resource disparity between the two you start to think to yourself well how the heck was the south able to win these battles and i think the key here is is fantastic leadership and i think that's what we're seeing up until this point in the war is good leadership wins battles um because that's crazy yeah looking a hundred thousand more factories right <laughs> And iron too. I mean, that was yeah. Think of all the weapons, the yeah, um, uh, yeah, equipment you needed to build, build using that that material. Exactly, um, cannons, everything, guns, yeah, ammunition. And then, yeah, to your point, Aiden, if you look a couple brackets down at the military side of it, um, it mentions that there was no real official army. Um, it was all just. South. It's yeah. just good, a bunch of good leaders that were able to rally, really a ragtag, uh, ragtag band of men together to go up against the the Federals. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, this whole this whole diagram, really, really, I think. Uh, yeah, we'll have to put sums this up in a nutshell. Yeah, you'll have to but add the, this. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really good one. And for those of you who are listening, we can um, put this maybe as a link um, in, uh, in, the, in the show notes here so you can take a look at this. But where did you get this from? Is this just a... Uh, did you just look This is off? It's a fact sheet I pulled from this, okay. uh, this history website. I'll share the link to it. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, because I think this is helpful for anybody that's just curious to look at this because it really... I mean, it breaks down everything. I mean, everything from casualties to um, total population, military population, everything. And this is something we'll talk about, I think, a little bit in the next podcast. But yeah, the um, the resources the South had were very limited, and it was mainly focused. Their main hub was in the Atlanta region. Um, Atlanta was a big uh, rail hub as well as a, a manufacturing hub at that time. Other than that, there was not a lot of other big hubs for production in the South. 
So it was kind of Atlanta that was, you know, if you were the union forces, um, the union army, you're, as you're, as you're trying to plan, how can we, how can we crush the rebels? How can we, how can we end this war? It ends up pointing, and this is what we'll talk about in the next podcast. It ends up, you know, all arrows kind of point towards making, you know, taking over Atlanta um, and making sure that that the rails are shut down. So supplies don't get out to the rest of the army, making sure that the factories are burnt and destroyed. So production stops. So that's something we'll talk about, I think, a little bit in the next podcast. But yeah, that's it's mind boggling when you look at those st- those stats there, Jake. But yeah, as as the war progresses, um, as the war progresses, you know, it's just a lot of. I think again, um, there's a lot going on and across the across the states, but it seems to be at this point the the South has a bit of bit of the upper hand. Um, one of the things that does happen between the Battle of Fredericksburg and the battle, the next big battle, the Battle of Gettysburg, is Stonewall Jackson, Lee's Corps command, one of Lee's Corps commanders. He's actually killed, um, and because of that, Lee then has to make the decision: well, who will take his place? And Lee ends up replacing him with two two core commanders. So now instead of two core commanders, he has three, he has Longstreet. And then I'm blanking on the other two guys. You might have to help me out here. Um, uh, one is Jeb Stewart. Jeb Stewart. Yep. Jeb Stewart. And then I'm, Oh, who's the other one? He's fading too. Anyways, there's three of them. Lee can't make up his mind between Jeb Stewart and the other guy because he doesn't trust both of them, either of them, the way he trusted Stonewall Jackson. So this is a this is a turning point here, because for the first time I think Lee's thrown off his normal game a little bit, and they described it in the podcast it would be like going seven zero seven zero and one because you can't really count the Battle of Antietam as a win it was kind of like a, a draw between the two forces, so it's it's Lee's seven zero and one at this point but it'd be like going into the playoffs winning the playoffs in football. And then you're playing in the Super Bowl and you decide to switch up your whole game. And so he goes from two core commanders to three core commanders. And this is, this leads us into the Battle of Gettysburg. But right before the Battle of Gettysburg, another key thing that happens here is West Virginia, there's a split in the Virginias and West Virginia splits off before the Battle of Gettysburg. And actually West Virginia joins the Union and start sending troops to fight. So that's kind of a big deal because you have this split in Virginia, which was before kind of a united front. But um, for West, you know, there's there's that idealistic um, differences in the Virginias in that air that that region of West Virginia splits. Um, so they split, and they actually end up they'll they'll end up sending troops to fight in the Battle of Gettysburg. 
So, yeah, the Battle of Gettysburg. So after Fredericksburg, Hooker's put in command. That's short-lived. Lincoln gets rid of Hooker after a loss, and he puts Meade in as general. And this seems to be the positive shift in the Union, the Federal Army's leadership. Things start looking up a little bit. Meade is a is an engineer, if I if I'm correct, and an Army engineer, and so he's a he's a pretty smart guy, and so he's um he's he's a he's a he's a good change at least from hooker um but so yeah we enter the the battle of of gettysburg and so lee's objective kind of moving into this battle of gettysburg you know he's 701 he's he's feeling a little ambitious he wants to head north um and his hopes are that he can force, you know, a negotiated end to the fighting. And at this point in 1863, there's a presidential ticket coming up and none other than McClellan's going to go run and our buddy McClellan. And the thought is that maybe if Lee can force the Union Army North back towards DC, he can force kind of a, a truce here. And hopefully there's a president elected. Hopefully Lincoln's, you know, taken out and there's a president like McClellan that will just agree to go back to status quo and leave the South alone. So that's kind of his idea here. Um, so he heads north and this is where the battle battle of Gettysburg kind of takes place uh, in in Pennsylvania. So he he's heading north. So he's north. Um, I'm trying to think of where he's at exactly, but he's north and actually to head towards D.C. and and um, he has to head actually south, um, if I'm remembering right. Do you guys remember where Lee was positioned at before he headed? It was almost like southeast towards towards dc that sounds great to me yeah okay so he was he was positioned somewhere in was he positioned up in northern pennsylvania or is that where he was at somewhere around there that's what i thought i thought that he was up there and then kind of doubled back doubled back a little back bit towards uh yeah and so that's how i remembered it and so that leads us to gettysburg and actually gettysburg you know up until this point lee's kind of picked his battlefields and where he fights but gettysburg ends up being he's passing through the area and yeah there's uh, he he kind of gets caught and meade and his army are you know headed to go protect the capital essentially and the two kind of get caught and it ends up being the most famous battle of the civil war and the bloodiest battle in american fought on american soil and um 
this battle really marked, I think, the turning point. The reason this battle is so important is it marked the turning point in the Civil War. Um, it was a three-day engagement, and there was an estimate over 50,000 lives lost in those three days. And so this really was, I think, if Lee had overcome Meade in this battle, I think this would have had a completely different outcome. Tom, what are your thoughts on the Battle of Gettysburg? Um, yeah, I, I actually hadn't gotten to this part yet in the podcast, but um, I was just looking at this map here of Gettysburg. Do you want to share it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, I need your access. Oh, yeah. So, from, so this is the map that it shows here. Um, for those listening, it has Gettysburg in the center here. And it looks like the Union Army was pretty much just surrounding the town. Mostly, most of the army seemed like it was in the southern part. Um, and it looks like they were fighting on one side of the road with this would be the oh i can't read it but so the union is on this road to the east while the um confederates on the west side road and they're hashing it out down there there's a little division up here farther northeast and they're taking out a detachment of confederates there as well and then on the northern part, we have um, a few soldiers. I don't know how many exactly, but it looks like they're trying to hold like a little bay area and they're getting flanked pretty heavily by the Confederates and they're retreating. And then you also have on the west side here, it looks like the Union is taking some pretty hard hits and they're also retreating, but you have some Confederates regrouping, it looks like. So on the first day, it looks like the northern part of the um, uh, northern part of the town is where the most of the fighting is happening, and it looks like most of the Union gets routed inside of the town. On the second day of fighting, this is mostly in the that little detachment to the east, and the southern part of town. Mostly, the southern part is where. Um, things are looking pretty hectic. Looks like there's quite a few routes of the Union. It looks like the Confederates usually work in locks, so they like come together in like a long string, push the Union back, the Union has to like clump together into smaller, longer sections, and they retreat some more. Um, and then the final battle on the third day was pretty much right at the southern point of the town. And it's just them fighting like pretty close together. Um, it's just hashing it out down there. But I, I actually never looked at the map before, but I understand why it would have been one of the bloodiest battles because there's so much happening everywhere. Mm -hmm. like, 
don't know if you guys can see this too well, but there's so many detachments and army movements that it seems like everyone was just trying to find a way to break through wherever they were kind of just as an elimination game rather than like a strategic like holding point. Yeah. Yeah. I think this, um, I've been to Gettysburg once and I mean the battle, like the battlefield's a pretty immense battlefield. I mean, it's fought, I mean, they fought over a, a pretty large swath of, of land and, um, so I think you're right there, Tom. I think that's probably one of the reasons maybe that this resulted in such heavy casualty. There's so much going on here. Um, yeah, on the on that third day of battle, you know, Lee's forced to withdraw his, his army from Gettysburg um, on actually July 4th. And he starts to go back towards Virginia, he turns around and goes back towards Virginia. Um, but, you know, he lost in this battle. Um, I'm looking for it here. I think they lost, the, the Confederate forces lost close to 60% of where their army stood at that point, the, the, the Northern, the Army of North Virginia, Northern Virginia. So, I mean, that's super significant. Um, Uh, but yeah, anyways, um, hey, Tom, uh, you're still sharing your screen there. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's truly a, a devastating, like, battle in the, The, the Confederate Army never really recovers from this. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in the next podcast. But, um, you know, Lincoln goes and visits the battlefield. Um, and actually, later that year in November, ends up delivering his famous Gettysburg Address there on the battlefield. Um, and he... He dedicates the battlefield to all the deceased soldiers. So I think just to close out this podcast, um, part two of the Civil War series, we'll close it with the Gettysburg Address because the sentiment that Lincoln shares here is one that's very heavy and kind of captures what this battle did to not only to, to both sides. So in the words of President Lincoln, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We met on a great battlefield of that war. 
we meet on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hollow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far before our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion. That he we that we here resolve highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of people by the people for the people shall not perish from this earth. So with those words, we'll close out this week of the Foundations of Freedom series, part two of the Civil War. We'll see you next week for part three. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate you listening to this full, full podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can like, comment, subscribe, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the Green Dragon Podcasts. Um, and we really look forward to bringing you the last and final segment of this series, Foundations of Freedom, the Civil War. Thank you. God bless.